Hello and welcome to the Respectfully Podcast. I'm Nikki Pope, your host for this hairdressing conversation. Our signature style at Respectfully is to invite one or two or even three guests each episode to explore with me different aspects of the hairdressing industry in the UK. We chat often with salon owners, stylists, trainees, sessionistas, fashionistas, photographers, the media. Actually, if it concerns hairdressing, we'll talk about it. Over the past three years, we've amassed a great library of chats for you to enjoy. So do have a browse on iTunes, Spotify or any of the leading podcast platforms. We're proud to have the most reviews of any hair podcast which you can read online. And having read them, please do feel free to add to them. It's really important to us to find out what you think. Now, for this final recording for the year 2021, I'm delighted that I was able to chat in person with session stylist Neil Moody. Neil is originally from the Midlands and you'll hear him share with me his hairdressing journey to becoming one of the most well-known stylists with many fabulous clients in the acting and modelling world. Neil has shot numerous high fashion stories with the most premium of photographers and has an impressive directory of influential friends on speed dial. But his experience of fame and fortune has been a roller coaster, and it was both touching and emotional hearing him share these in a very personal way. Honestly, after such a long time working at a distance on Zoom and online, it was so refreshing to sit face to face with Neil and particularly important given we were discussing mental health and well-being. Thanks to Electric Space and Mark Woolley for lending us their studio. And given this central London location, there was a bit of street noise at times, so apologies in advance for the odd police siren or pneumatic drilling. Hello and welcome to my guest, Neil Moody. Nice to see you. Hi, Nikki. Lovely to see you. And we are actually seeing each other in real life now, which is just so refreshing, sitting in a little studio in I central know, it's London. it's so nice, <laughs> rather than on a, on a Zoom. I know. Well, hopefully we'll have a bit of traffic and noise around so people will really believe that, that is, that's <laughs> what we're doing. But thank you for joining me. I really was interested to meet you. I've heard a lot about you over the years. Tell us your story for anybody else who is meeting you for the first time. Where where have you come from? How have you got to be Neil Moody, the celebrity Instagrammer, podcaster? Well, I am, I'm going to give my age away straight away. I'm now 54, so I began hairdressing when I was 16 in Birmingham, which wow. is where I grew up. Yeah. So I'm calculating, I think that's about 36, eight years. Eight years, wow. 38 years. Gosh, well, yeah. you look very well on it. Thank you. <laughs> Um, a bit ruddy this morning from my bike ride. But yeah, the um, I started in Birmingham when I left school. And it was funny because I didn't initially want to be a hairdresser. I wanted to be a journalist. Wow. And that was always my goal at school. But my English teacher and I didn't have the best relationship. So when I went to see my careers advisor and said I wanted to be a journalist, they said to me, well, we've spoken to your English teacher and she said that she doesn't think that you can concentrate well enough to be able to um, train to do that. And, of course, I was, I was so upset about that because I felt very discouraged. And and actually, becoming a hairdresser was my rebellion act because it was the early 80s and we were experimenting with our hair and everything anyway. And, obviously, even me as a guy, we were wearing makeup and things like that because, you know, that was what we started doing in the 80s. Yeah. And were you a new romantic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was totally immersed in being a new romantic. And, you know, you used to have to creep out the house and then apply eyeliner walking down the street because my mum wouldn't let me wear makeup. But it was one of those situations where I just thought, I don't know what I want to do now because I've been discouraged. 
And because I was colouring my friend's hair, even though I didn't know what I was doing, right. we just used to experiment and hope for the best. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to be a hairdresser. And so it was a very unplanned um, career choice for me. But kind of creative. When you wanted to be a journalist, was that because you wanted to write like interviews and stories about things? Or did you mm. see yourself as being like the sort of reporter on the case? I think a bit of both, actually. Yeah. I mean, I remember I used to watch the news and see people running around the world. And I just thought, that sounds quite, seems quite exciting. Yeah. You know, and I never associated them initially to, with being journalists, but obviously they are. Um, but then I liked the idea of sort of writing creatively as well. And so that's where I think that came from. But because um, I was very musical as well. I used to, I learned to play four instruments which I don't play anymore. Right. So, um, but and actually, my best instrument ended up being my voice. So I used to sing mm. and used to perform as a child singer. Gosh, so um, very creative. And mm. I'm getting an image then of somebody who was quite confident. Quite, were you kind of confident in yourself? Were you easy in your skin? I was confident in myself, but very unconfident to the outside world. I think when I was at home in my bedroom, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But then I think. You know, once I stepped outside at school and, you know, I sort of, I guess I knew that I was gay then, but didn't know, if you know right. what I mean. It was, yeah. it, um, And it was a subject back then that was less talked about and less accepted. And so that used to make me very unconfident, very shy, because I felt like I couldn't be who I really wanted to be. Right. And I didn't really actually come out until I was about 18 years old. Whereas now you can come out at school and, you know, and yeah, it's very accepting. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely moved. Mm. So are you, an, are you an only child or were you in, uh, did you have siblings? I have an older sister right. who, funnily enough, is also very creative. So our mother's creative. She was um, trained to be, decorate wedding cakes. That was her profession. And, but she was very crafty, my mother. So she taught us lots of crafty things. And that's what my sister does now. She has her own YouTube channel teaching crafts and art and yeah. things like that she's very popular she's more popular than me on <laughs> youtube it's funny enough but yeah um so there was the two of us and actually my sister she i think my sister knew she knew who i was before i did right you know she was very intuitive and when i told her i was gay she was like oh god i knew anyway you know yeah. <laughs> um Brilliant. so yeah so was, quite um, a close family yeah, yeah, we yeah. were very close. Jumping into hairdressing, so the mm. reaction at home to hairdressing, that was then, they, they were supportive of... My that. father wasn't too keen on the idea. My mother was fine, because I think being a creative, she accepted it a lot easier. But when they sat and talked to me, they were kind of very, are you sure it's what you want to do? Because this mm. is such a departure from your original plan. And I just said, well, yeah, because I actually don't know what else I want to do now, because... My ideas had been quashed. Yeah. And so I have to say, my dad then became quite supportive. But I think in his eyes, he couldn't quite work out how I could make a career out of it, apart from being in a salon behind a chair. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to be fair to him, he took me around. I went to all the colleges in Birmingham. I went to all, in, you know, having interviews in salons to be an apprentice. And he, he did research for me to find out, you know, what were the best avenues for me to become a hairdresser. Right. So I guess he did support it in the end because yeah. he realised I'd made that decision. Yeah, brilliant. Know. So what did you do? You joined a salon? Did you? I decided an apprenticeship was better for me. Yeah. Um, that felt more a natural progression for me than, I don't know, there was something about college at the time. I, was, I think I wanted to get away from school. 
Yeah. That was the thing because of this whole, you know, not being supported. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't um, sound I was great. like, I don't want to be in a yeah. sort of scholar type sort of environment, basically. And was it love at first cut? Did you instantly think you'd found the right thing? Yes, I did. I mean, within three days, I was getting my hair coloured. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I sort of found like I I felt like I'd found my vocation very quickly. It sounds as though you didn't have that experience of being dissuaded or being, you know, do you ever have that perception that you're just a hairdresser? You know how people say, oh, well, you know. Do you know what I found, Nick? It's interesting because a few years later, after I'd finished my training, I used to be slightly embarrassed about it. And I used to say to people, oh, I'm just a hairdresser. Where did that come from? Why do you think? I think that was because of how people perceived hair, hairdressers at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was seen as a profession. I realised after I started, it was seen as a profession that was chosen by people that maybe weren't very academic. Yeah. Um, potentially couldn't get a job in other areas, you know, of, yeah. of, of a career. And so it was the route to take down when you were a little bit stuck for a choice of job. Yeah. Which, funny enough, I kind of was in a way. But then I was also academic. You know, yeah. my parents wanted me to go on and do A-levels, and I could have done. I mean, I left school with three O-levels and two CSEs, as they were known then. And I could have quite easily gone on, but I just lost the passion to be at school. Mm. And I wanted to learn, but I wanted to learn in a completely different environment. But I think I definitely had that embarrassment for a while, which I definitely don't have now. No. Um, and because I think it's changed, but... I still think there is an element of people seeing hairdressing as, you know, it's a career for people who maybe don't have any other choice, Yeah, which I disagree with. So you're in Birmingham, you've done your training. What brings you to session styling? Was Mm. that an obvious choice? And I know you've, you know, you've had product lines, you've owned Mm. your own salons. Jump us through that journey. Yeah, so very quickly, I moved, I left Birmingham when I was 18, 17, late almost 18 and moved to London I um the salon I used to work at in Birmingham they used to bring us to London on little trips and we'd go to like hair events and things and I remember being like "Mm, there's something more in London that isn't available in Birmingham um in terms of career wise and so my partner and I at the time decided to move to London and so we did um and very quickly started to work in salons in central London um, in Covent Garden, Knightsbridge areas. And I remember my first introduction to session work was I was very interested in magazines. You know, I used to look at the face ID. I also looked at Vogue because they were always in the salon. And I remember thinking, who does the hair on these shoots? Yeah. And at first I didn't realise there were credits with names. And I started to look. And then that was when I first discovered Sam McKnight because yeah. he was doing a lot of British Vogue back then as he still does now but he was his name was very synonymous with British Vogue at the time and I remember thinking oh that's interesting but I had no idea how I could ever enter that world so I just used to look at it from a distance but then I worked in a salon in Covent Garden that's no longer there called Brinks and Huck and actually there was a hairstylist called James Brown who was working there and he trained with them they're all ex-Vidal Sassoon stuff um, and the owners were and James grew up with Kate Moss. Right, yeah. And he, Kate used to come into the salon. This was before she was well-known. She was like 16, and she'd started modelling, and, you know, she used to come in and hang out in the salon and then be like, oh, I've got to go on a casting, and we, she'd like, I don't want to go, and we used to push her out. <laughs> and then suddenly, obviously, 
her career took off. Yeah. Um, and James' career went with it because he was doing her hair and started getting booked. And that was really my first introduction of how that world worked, how the, you know, the wheels would go around in that industry. And James used to come back and be like, oh my God, there's this and that, and this happened and that happened. And so suddenly we were all really kind of like excited, yeah. you know, about this different career path that was possible. And um, mine happened because I worked with a photographer actually that James used to work with yeah. um, called Corinne Day. And Jay, uh, Corinne asked, once I did a shoot with her, how it started was I'd become a hair colourist because I was bored of cutting hair. <laughs> um, and become a hair colourist just to change it up a little bit. And Corinne contacted me and said, would you colour this model's hair for me? And so I did um, for this shoot that she was doing. She was a brand new model. And then um, the hairstylist on the shoot pulled out at the last minute. So Corinne just called me and she said, would you be interested in coming to do the hair for the shoot? You've done the hair colour. And, you know, I think it'd be, I think you understand what I'm trying to achieve with her hair. So would you be interested in coming? And I was a bit like, oh God, I don't know. But I said, yeah, okay. And so I sort of just threw myself in at the deep end. And three months later, the shoot came out in the Face magazine and it was like a 10 page shoot. So now you're, you've got, Already I'm hearing names that are just, you know, iconic names of mm. photographers and, and magazines. So you're with the Italian Vogue. So where are we now? Is this the 90s? This is 1994. Right. Yeah. Just when it really explodes, Britpop and all the oh, interest yeah. and, the, and the personalities. Totally. It was like everyone suddenly had a big personality again. Yeah. Wasn't it? Absolutely. I and I think, you know, what was interesting for me as well, Corinne as a photographer who I then worked with for 14 years until she sadly died... You know, her and her husband, they were booked to work on the early Oasis videos. And I actually ended up working on an Oasis video for the song Cigarettes and Alcohol. Um, and that was before they were well known. Yeah. So the whole kind of Brit pop, Brit explosion, I was smack bang in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, which was fantastic. You know, yeah. I have to say at the time, it was kind of, it was so exciting. I think it's almost like reminiscent of the 60s was the other period when people were famous for being um, cool or mm. famous for, you know, or noted. I don't know if famous is the right word. So in the 90s, you are surrounded by all these big personalities. You're loving it. How do you view this cult of celebrity, you know, ranging from the it's great, it's not great to the how mm. do you, what do you see as the, as the, the trip hazards? I think one of the problems with the celebrity world is that it's become a thing that a lot of people desire to become a celebrity, to become well-known, to become famous, especially now with social media. And I think before, even back in the 90s, it was, obviously we didn't have social media back then, so people weren't striving to necessarily to be a celebrity, they were just striving to be good at what they do. I think now what's happened is is that the celebrity world has been flipped on its head a bit because you can almost be a celebrity for doing nothing yeah. or very little. Or having an Instagram account. Or having an Instagram yeah. account or a TikTok account and making yourself very famous. But I think the, one of the negative sides of that is a lot of people that are entering that world and trying to make their name... They don't realise what being a celebrity actually entails yeah. because it's not all 
roses no. and you know gifts and red carpet it comes with a lot of other stuff too there's a lot of negativity especially with social media now where you can be attacked trolled yeah i mean i don't mean attacked physically but you know people can attack your personality attack the way that you look people can be trolled which we've seen numerous times now in the press yeah and i think in a way a lot of these people that get this very quick instant fame aren't prepared for that side. You now have worked for the last three or four years mm -hmm. with podcasts and talking and conversations with people and mm. you are particularly interested in and concerned with and supportive of issues around mental health. Mm -hmm. Is that reflective of something in your journey as yes. a hairdresser? Yeah. So when I was about 30, I'd moved, I was living in New York and my career had really taken off at that point as a session hairdresser and you know on paper my career looked amazing you know i was doing everything that i needed to be doing working for all the best magazines and with the best photographers um but i was struggling with it mentally because the workload was so huge right. and i think i wasn't really prepared for how much workload there was going to be and I was literally on a plane off a plane three four times a week yeah um and not recovering from jet lag not getting any rest and I'd reached a point where, where I was get, getting nervous to say no to things because of that worry of you know if I turn that job down will I ever get booked again by that yeah. person or by that company because I've said no and you're a freelancer at this point yes so, yeah, yeah working for yourself yeah so it was that fear of um you know sort of just being rejected because I'd rejected them but then it all came to a head and I had basically like a breakdown and I became agoraphobic I was having really bad anxiety attacks and eventually after going to meet professionals I was diagnosed with mild depression and severe anxiety right and I actually uh, took four months off work whilst I recovered mm -hmm. and had therapy and I uh, was on medication as well because I'd really plummeted pretty low. And it was trying to work out why. Yeah. You know, that was a big problem for me because I was like, one of the things I've talked about in the past is my father had a nervous breakdown when I was about 10 or 11 years old and actually had tried to kill himself twice when we were young. So I'd already lived with that. Yeah. And my fear was that I was going to end up the same as him. Right. But one of the things that all the therapists and psychiatrists that I saw were that they were like, Neil, you're only a product of him, you're not him. Yeah. But it was a very worrying time because I also, as I started to get better, I started to think about, oh God, can I tell people about this? I don't think I can. You know, people are going to judge me because of, you know, what I've been through. Are they going to think I'm not strong enough to deal with, you know, being at work or, you know, this kind of thing. So I kept it very quiet. Was that the first time you had been aware of feeling fragile? Because we talked about when you were younger that you were confident in your mm. own environment, but outwardly mm. perhaps less so. But this sounds more that you were aware of your own sort of fragility. I was, and I actually experienced anxiety attacks about the age of 14, but I didn't realise what they were. Right. Um, and, and when I moved to London, I experienced them again. I remember, um, you know, getting on the tube and just sweating and being breathless and having to get off the tube because I felt very disorientated. And what had happened was I'd moved to London with my partner and we'd split up. Yeah. And I was suddenly in London on my own, mm -hmm. but still kind of carry on going to the salon to work, etc. And But again, not really knowing what was happening. So there was a real fragility in me, I think, that I was unaware of. And... I think, you know, 
as a youngster, you sort of recover from those things a lot quicker. Um, and so I would come out the other side and be like, oh, I'm fine again now. Yeah. You know, as maybe my life, something happened that would cheer me up a little bit or something, you know. But then, like I say, when I hit 30, really, it was like it punched me in the face. And looking back now, I think, in a way, I should have dealt with it earlier. But I just didn't really know what didn't it was. Know what it was. So in, at this time in your 30s when you were getting help, mm. did, did you have any sense of, like, relief that actually it could be you could understand what had been happening all this time or do you just think of it as being a very dark time or, or both actually because in, initially it felt very dark especially as you know I remember I went through a whole week where I didn't sleep for five nights and so I was basically up for five days and nights and this was before I started to get the help and that was when my friends came to see me and they were like we think you need to go and see somebody because this isn't good and I like I said become acrophobic when I started to get the help, I started to realise that there was things that you could do to make yourself better. Yeah. And what it was, what I had to figure out was um, what had triggered these things in the first place. Right. Because I didn't know what they were. I didn't really understand what had triggered it off. And once I started doing the work on myself with the help of professionals... I started figuring it out, you know, sort of going, ah, oh, okay, that's why that happened. So you've worked on yourself, you, mm. you had help and support. Is that done and dusted, or is that something that you now will always do? Is it like... It's ongoing. I, um, obviously I, don't, I don't have... I say obviously, it's not obvious, but I, I don't have therapy every week anymore, and I speak to my psychiatrist maybe once every two years. What's great is to know that they are there if ever I needed them or right. if I was having a, a you know a bit of a lull or a lower patch where I wasn't feeling so great, which I have done. Yeah. I have revisited them. But what's really good is to know that they're there. Yeah. But I would never say to anybody, my anxiety, my depression has gone. Yeah. I've learnt to deal with it. I've learnt to cope with it. I know the triggers, but I also know the mechanisms and the things to do to stop them from getting out of control yeah which is what I was taught and I think when I hit 50 which is now four years ago um that was around the time that I resigned from Windler Moody mm -hmm. after working on that project so I call it for like 12 years and that was a bit of a low patch for me because obviously yeah. leaving that was quite a big thing and that was when I actually chose to then talk about my mental health mm. issues and what I'd been through and put it out there to the world a bit more because I realised that in life we all go through these roller coaster moments. Nobody's on a level par. Yeah. I think we wouldn't be human if that was the case. But I realised that there are people out there that still don't know where to go or how to get help, or even where to start to get help. Yeah. But they're experiencing anxiety, depression, and especially with social media now where people are putting so much out there and also putting their lives on the line, as we've mentioned earlier, you know, putting themselves up for scrutiny and, yeah. you know, being trolled and being attacked. And I thought, God, you know what? I think it'd be really good if I could put it out there to at least help somebody if they were struggling how I struggled. For men in particular, how in your in the last few years since you have been talking about it and actively looking for information, mm. the position for men is 
much more tricky, isn't it, than for women in asking or getting help? Yeah, I think so. I still think, you know, and again, it's improving slowly. There's still a stigma behind male depression, male anxiety, partly because men are seen to be the alpha figures. Yeah. They see themselves as the alpha figures, especially if they're in a relationship, for example, you know, and... Uh, say with a female and they have feel that they have to be the stronger person and this is one of the things that I have been sort of trying to help you know in any way that I can to sort of try and break that stigma because I think with mental health with men it's brushed under the carpet still a lot more you know I've mentioned recently in a podcast that I've done you know a, a family member of mine who is in their 30s who is male um, you know, told their parent that they were struggling with mental health but didn't want to go and see anybody because men don't talk about it. Yeah. And I found that quite sort of upsetting because I've already talked about it. They know I've talked about it. Yeah. They didn't come to me and say, you know, Neil, look, can you help me or can you point me yeah. in the right direction? We need to help each other to feel it's okay also to talk to somebody else. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, and I think that's... That's mm. really... Which is where I think, you know, one of the, I know how we've ended up having this um, interview today is because you were told about my interview with Tom Chapman yes. from the Lions oh. Bark Collective. Yeah. And, you know, what he's doing is so amazing because it's, it's very geared towards, you know, sort of uh, the male sort of predominant world. But the fact that as a barber, he's teaching other barbers and now hairdressers yeah. to try and hear those things within their clients that potentially mean that the person's struggling and trying to get them to open up and you know the interview that I've just done with Tom and Rosie Tapner um, is about how probably in the more metropolitan cities talking about mental health is a lot more is a lot easier and more open but the minute you go more into the suburbs and less metropolitan areas that's where it's still brushed under the carpet and that's one of the things that we were trying to sort of get to open up more, that it shouldn't just be metropolitan-based. Yeah, because I think those of us who do live in perhaps um, areas like, you know, big cities, you can forget how parochial life can be away mm. from the cities or how traditional they can be. And I did, um, I would encourage everyone to watch, I think you have your, that particular podcast is on YouTube, isn't yeah. it, currently? And mm. we'll put it in the show notes. But um, one of you made the point in that, that, for example men working on construction sites, building sites, are three times more likely mm. to suffer and to maybe try yeah. and commit suicide than in almost any other uh, work yeah. environment. Because they're so traditional, they're so difficult, they're mm. so macho, you know. Yeah. It, it, and those of us who aren't in, included find it hard to visualise that that happens. But no, totally. I mean, we talk about how in that world, you know, there's a lot of banter men's banter and actually there's a line between something being banter that then crosses over into bullying yeah you know because generally banter gets aimed at somebody yeah and it's normally somebody that's a bit more vulnerable and that banter can become bullying and they you know somebody else becomes the brunt of a joke yeah and they think it's funny but that person could be really struggling with that banter but because they're in this very sort of alpha male world they don't want to seem to be vulnerable and this is why they think this is happening within sort of like construction workers 
farmers, you know, all these kind of areas where a lot of these people actually, for example, construction workers will go away and work on their own. They stay in hotel rooms. Yeah. And the minute they're in their hotel room, they're actually on their own, away from their family, away from their wives, girlfriends, etc. And that's when the problem happens is that they sat in that room yeah. on their own. Very isolated. Really isolated, dealing with what they've dealt with throughout the day. I think, you know, this is all the things that we want to try and, again, try and break, you know, the yeah. stigma of, think about when there's banter going on, is that banter becoming bullying? What's the level, what's the point where you yeah. go, actually, we need to stop? Yeah. Or what's the, what does, does somebody have to go, actually, you know what, guys, let's stop picking on this person. Yeah. Because it's becoming a bit bullyish now. Yeah, you, know? you just need somebody to stand up for them. Whether it's on on social media, whether it's online, some you know, we need to sort of say no mm. to things that we see happening. I think you know, again, it's very hard in society, isn't it? Because a lot of us have taken on this bystander mentality, whereas you don't want to get involved because it could be dangerous. It could switch mm. to you. You know, we're almost taught to sort of hurry past. Yeah, don't get involved if there's a fight going on. Mm. Um, you know, if you hear people saying something that's unacceptable you sort of turn away because mm. you're worried about getting involved and it switching on to you but yeah. actually really we need to be braver mm. i'm interested let me just bring it back particularly to hairdressing because we are this podcast is for hairdressers listening mm. it sounds to me is it not overwhelming to ask hairdressers and barbers to be sort of spotting signs of mental health problems what what can they do how can we encourage people to not see that as a real like overwhelming addition to their role what mm. what does it as the hairdresser what could you do or say that is reasonable without interfering without prying mm. without taking on too much I mean I think it's about not taking on the role of suddenly becoming their therapist yeah. or their counsellor um it because that's when it can become an issue yeah because ultimately you know, like you say, people sit in the chair. I think there's an element of when somebody touches your head, you go into somebody's space that you wouldn't ne- let anybody generally, you know, you yeah. generally wouldn't let somebody start touching your head or touching your face. But I think this is why the barriers break down very quickly between a client and the hairdresser, because you're touching the head and so they suddenly become very verbal. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great in one way, you know, yeah. and they open up. But I think it's about... being able to recognise the signs but then not becoming the therapist and the counsellor yeah it's sort of saying well hey listen you know do you think maybe and then it's about gearing them towards maybe you should think about going to see a therapist maybe you should think about having acupuncture telling somebody or telling somebody yeah it's it's only about recognising the signs. And I think this is what Tom is doing with the Lions Barber Collective. Right. They're not trying to suddenly turn hairdressers into therapists. Yeah. It's just... Because in a way, I've always said... I remember when I was having therapy, my therapist said, Neil, I think so many hairdressers take on the roles of therapists without really realising, yeah. but also without the training. Yeah. Because clients do open up to you and you start trying to help them. Well, and it's like absorbing it, and actually, mm. that could, you know, that's a big burden for you to take on as Absolutely. the hairdresser, you know. And she was saying to me, you know, as a therapist, they go and have therapy to offload yeah. what they've dealt with throughout the day with their clients. Yeah. But she's like, hairdressers don't have that. Mm. And I actually think that would be a really good thing to have in place, yeah. is that hairdressers could actually go somewhere and be like, oh my God, this client today, da da da, da. Yeah. You know, because 
as we all know, not every client is easy breezy. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, you, you do you, get. You need to download yourself. You need to download, and so I think it's about not thinking that you suddenly have to take on this role. Yeah, you know, it's about just being able to recognise the signs and help people in the right direction to yeah. get the help. Because I think you know, from where I sit in the media, we've talked over the last ten years about how hairdressers could help spot signs of cancer. They could help spot signs of domestic abuse. They could help spot mm. signs of dementia and their mental health. And I think to myself, gosh, that's a lot for an 18, 19, 20-year-old to be. Yeah. I think this is one of the things that they do with the Lions Barber Collective is that they encourage the salon teams to get together and discuss things as well. And Brilliant. if somebody's having, you know, had a maybe, um, you know, a client that's offloaded on them more to be able to then talk about it. You know, rather than just saying to haters, we're going to teach you how to deal with this and with a client. Yeah. You know, then they actually encourage everyone to get together, which I think is actually probably the most important part, yeah. really, you know. So let's bring this, let's bring this home now. Yeah. Um, where, how, how do you cope these days? How positive do you feel about our well-being in hairdressing? How positive is Neil Moody these days about yourself and about our industry and how supportive we can be? Um, I th- <laughs> should <laughs> All of start with um, really, that. should I? <laughs> there is, I'm not going to lie, there are times when I still don't feel great, but I've realised that's normal. Yeah. Talking about normalising. Yeah. You know, it's impossible to feel on a high all the time. Yeah. But... I think as I've gotten older and done so much work on myself, I've learnt to understand who I am and how my brain works, how I operate. And for me, personally, if I am in a situation that I don't feel comfortable with or something's happening that I don't feel comfortable with, I've learnt to remove myself from that. Like, for example, my agent said to me, I know when Neil Moody said he doesn't want to do a job... He doesn't want to do it. And that's the end of the conversation. Right. She was like, you know, Neil, I've learned from you that you decide when you want to do a job. I can't force you to do a job. And that was a big thing for me, of sort of being able to say no when I wanted to say no. Rather than just going, oh, the agent says I have to do this because it's a good job. You know, I I think I have a much better understanding of my career now as well. And also kind of going, I probably don't need to do that that shoot. You know, let somebody else do that. Let somebody younger do that. I'm also aware of what I need to do to stay relevant as a session stylist. Yeah. Because there's a lot of that involved. You need to stay relevant in order to stay on the top of the game. I think in the hairdressing world, especially in the salon world, I feel that salons now need to create an experience for clients rather than just... I'm coming to get my hair done and then I'm leaving. Yeah. It needs to be an experience because getting your hair done is a feel-good thing, not necessarily just a necessity because your hair's grown. It's become part of that beauty regime for yeah. people, for a lot of people. And I realise we do have to get a haircut, you know, because at some point it gets too long and it needs cutting. But it's now incorporated into the beauty world of feel-good factors. And so I think, you know... If you can be in a salon where the feel-good factor is on a really high level, um, then that's going to create a better environment for the clients and also for staff. Yeah. You know, I think there's nothing worse than staff kind of turning up for work and not really wanting to be there. Yeah. You know, having had us being part of a salon 
um, in a business that had a salon, I used to feel like sometimes there were staff there that just used to moan constantly. Yeah. And in the end, I used, I mean, I never ran the salon. Mm. Paul Winder used to run the salon. But sometimes he'd say to me, if you're that unhappy, why do you stay here? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, well, I quite like it. Well, then, you know what? Start enjoying what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And showing that. And showing that, rather than just keep finding the negatives. One of the things I've learned in my life is to, if there are some negatives, try and change them. Because you don't have to live with those negatives forever. We have a choice as human beings to change the things that we want to change. And I think that's where a lot of people trip up sometimes, is that they forget we have choices. Yeah. You know, we have choices in everything. However small in the grand scheme of things you feel, there is a choice somewhere. Absolutely. Um, and mm. when you can when you can make choices, yeah. then you're going to feel better mm. in every way and you're going to understand better what choices you're prepared to make, which choices you're prepared to live with. Yeah. You know, because sometimes things aren't always great, but we go, okay, I can, I can accept that mm. and I can do something about that. Yeah. Um, there was, there's a saying by Abraham Lincoln from years ago, which I always love, and it's, it says the best way... To, the best way to create... Hang on, let me think what it is. <laughs> I always forget it when I go to tell someone. <laughs> the best way to predict your future is to create it. Yes, yeah. And I, that was... When somebody told me that years ago, I was like, my God, that's such a brilliant line and quote to keep with you because people always go, you know, what do you predict? What do you predict? Well, create the yeah. prediction. Yeah. You know? Have some control. I think overall, feeling out of control or losing control or feeling like there's a loss of control is very scary whether mm. you're sitting in a plane that's being thrown around by the weather and you can't do anything about it or whether you know something's happening in your work environment or at home trying to get some control back in some way even if it's a small thing mm. just decide something for yourself yeah what i'm going to eat when i'm going to go to bed who i'm going to speak to mm. you know try and get some kind of choices back because i think mm. feeling that things are happening to you is often of a lot of yeah of depression no totally and I feel even with salons you know it's a bit like I think you know as a salon owner think about if you're going to open a salon think about what would you like as a if you were a client yeah what would you love as a client yeah you know and then whatever that is then put that experiences those experiences into your salon so that then you can create that for the people that come because I think as a because a lot of salon owners always say oh my god it's so much pressure it's so hard I, I, know, I totally understand, but I think if you create the experience that you would like yourself, then that running that salon will be a lot, yeah. a, a better experience yeah. for yourself. For yourself and for the people with you. Yeah. Neil Moody, thank you very much. We could talk a lot more, but let's leave that for chapter two. Mm, pleasure. We'll have another conversation another day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye and thank you to Neil Moody, my guest today on the Respectfully podcast. I do hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please feel free to get in touch and give us some feedback. And jump over to our library of chats on Spotify, iTunes or all the other podcast providers. You're sure to find plenty to interest you. Until next time, goodbye.